Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast is part two in the three-part series on environmental, social and governance, or ESG issues. The series is sponsored by Trillium Asset Management. And to listen to the first part where we interview Trillium's Matt Pesky, please visit www.i3-invest.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Nicole Bradford, who is Global Head of Responsible Investment at Ciba Super. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks, Walter. It's a delight to be here with you today. Yes, and in person. That is uh, new as well. Absolutely. And uh, the first time for me to do one of these in person. So wonderful opportunity. Excellent. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into the ESG space? So I believe you worked as an environmental scientist for CSIRO. How did you get into sort of the investment space and superannuation space? Well, I would really define the early part of my career as the road less travelled. And in the last two years of high school, I was really fortunate to befriend an American girl who had recently arrived in Australia. And I didn't know much about America other than TV because I hadn't travelled there. And when we were studying for our final exams, I was complaining to her that I the, the course that I wanted to do at university wasn't available in Sydney. And Tara said to me, well, why don't you leave Sydney and go where you want to, to do your study? It was a very normal American reaction because they go away for college. But for me, it was an absolute revelation. So I moved to Canberra. Okay. Yeah, it seems that Americans travel all over the country to go wherever they need to study or or work. But you moved to Canberra. I moved to Canberra and CSIRO was right across the road from the science faculty at the Australian National University. And so we had the opportunities to do summer internships there. And that led me to my first job at the land and water division, working on satellite imagery and remote sensing. And primarily the focus of my projects was on mangrove communities in the Daintree rainforest. Mangroves, well, that's something completely different, isn't it? It is very different, but also very interesting, really important ecosystems. And what I love about science is that you're always creating new knowledge and hopefully helping to make the world a better place. Yeah. At that time as well, CSIRO, though, was weaning itself off government funding. So whilst it was a great opportunity and it would have been really nice to stay there, I had a decision to make. And I did choose to leave 
CSIRO and I looked for a new job and I started to work on Commonwealth environmental legislation, which was also interesting because I was studying my master's in environmental law. But uh, I wasn't particularly interested in the compliance side. So once it was enacted, I moved with my now husband overseas to the UK for our next adventure. Yeah, so you didn't want to be a regulator? No, I didn't think that was quite my space. <laughs> Fair enough. And after a few years, I ended up at a consulting firm in London. And that was the role that was really going to put me on the trajectory for my future career up until now. And my manager won a project that took her about 10 months of negotiations to land. And that was working for a global bank on defining a company's performance on their environmental, social and governance criteria. Because they had the idea that they wanted to continue financing the leaders and, of course, the middle-of-the-road companies and ones that were also on the upward trend. But what they wanted to avoid was financing the laggards because they thought they are going to become a credit risk. Yeah, right, right. And I think you also worked some time for General Electric. I did. And following that work in London, I was instantly hooked and realised that if I wanted to influence change and really make a difference in the world, I just needed to follow the money. And so when I came back to Australia, I was very deliberate and intentional about my career path from then on. And I went to the GE family, firstly within their real estate business, and then more broadly within their commercial finance business across Asia Pacific, which also included a stint in Japan. Okay. And that's when I really got into the weeds of looking at environmental and social risks through the lens of uh, investment criteria. And I also started studying applied finance at that time as well. So do you speak any Japanese? Choto Nihongo o Henashimasu. So then um, the superannuation industry, how did you get in there? Well, for me, I was a GE for a while and it was clear to me that I didn't think the GE commercial finance business was going to thrive in Asia Pacific over the long term. So I gave myself quite a long runway to contemplate what's next. And my criteria was around, I wanted a smaller company, so I wanted to be closer to the leadership and HQ in Australia, a broader investment universe and a PRI signatory. So that really describes an Australian superannuation fund. So it wasn't too difficult after I really worked out that criteria where I wanted to head. And then when I saw the job at CBUS, it really instantly resonated with me because the strong connection to the built environment and that its members work in blue collar industries. And that's the perfect alignment to the culture at GE as well. Yeah. Now, when I started sort of first looking into this space and, and, and talk to people uh, and that were following sort of the, the ESG space, it, it seemed to be a very sort of tick-the-box industry. Um, I, I wrote an article once where I, where I quoted someone who said, I was really looking forward when people had to uh, put in the risks associated with that in, in their annual reports. And then when the annual reports came out, I was so disappointed because I could see which law firm they all used. How do you see the changes between sort of those early days and, and now? Well, the history of ESG has really been an ongoing evolution. And if you look at socially responsible investment, it was driven by ethical investing and religious values. And from what we know, it started around the Methodist Church 
200 years ago using negative screening. And in the 60s, we saw more attention continue to be paid uh, to negative screening by investors with exclusions from tobacco and also companies involved in apartheid. But when you look at exclusion, it's really just an investment overlay and it has little tangible impact to the effect on the portfolio composition. So, for example, CBUS currently has tobacco and controversial weapons exclusions, which we review on an, an annual basis. So conceivably, you could check in once a year with really out much consideration to the issues or the impact to the portfolio more broadly. Then we started to see in the 90s and the 2000s a lot of company scandals. Environmental social issues, they started to be on the front page of the newspapers. So we saw Nike, which was a historical poster child for sweatshops, Nestle with the powdered milk baby scandals. There was Enron, WorldCom, OneTel and HIH in Australia. More recently, we've also seen Rana Plaza in Bangladesh, where it really highlighted the value of a company and the importance of supply chains and the management of those. And also BHP's dam failings. We saw people's lives lost, livelihoods lost, and also an erosion of shareholder value. So in the mid-2000s, these ideas and issues were starting to come to the forefront of investors and really being realised. And that's when a lot of asset owners started to treat their voting rights in particular as an asset to the companies in, in which they were invested. So really the next flow on from there was a recognition that ESG could be a concept of risk management. And then we started to see the value creation side of that as well. Yeah. So I think super funds have been quite on the forefront of these issues. Do you think that has to do with the fact that they basically have to represent their members and um, implement their feedback? So from, from your role, have you seen sort of a lot of push from members on this or does it come more from sort of a strategic level? Well, I think there's two components to it. Firstly, we believe that ESG issues over the long term uh, are material investment risks and to be able to continue to deliver good outcomes to our members, we need to take account of these issues. And we've been very fortunate because we've seen the live example of this in in CBUS. For example, when CBUS property was seeded and the idea of, of creating that as one of our uh, portfolio managers, it was a connection to the members and how our money was used. And it was evident that we couldn't cut corners because they needed to be high quality. So our members uh, work in these industries, a big focus on safety and labour practices, given that member base in the building and construction industry. So the focus was on risk management. But then we also needed to make sure that they were green buildings given the market demand because they were that high quality in the premium commercial office space. And what that has afforded CBUS is seeing the enormous opportunity over the near last 15 years of that value creation from sustainability and the job creation for our members. So that's the first component. We see it from the investment lens. From a member perspective, it's interesting that you ask that question because we have noticed a change in our members over time. And recently, in 2019, we conducted research with our member and employer groups to better understand their interpretation of responsible investment and where we can improve our communication about the work we do and how that leads to better outcomes for their retirement because ultimately our duty is to act in our members' best interest. 
what we found is firstly, our members place a high degree of trust in CBUS. And this also extends to their view on how we approach investing their super. And with many members in the building and construction industry, they do understand the importance of the labour rights and the safety issues. And that came clear through the survey. But they're also starting to consider more about these broader issues like climate change and preparing for the net zero emissions economy. And I would suggest that if CBUS members are considering these issues, they're very practical people, that that's a reflection of broader society. Well, I was just about to ask, and maybe I'm, I'm making a sweeping generalisation here, but you know, when you go past the building site, you don't necessarily think that the, the people in hard hats and high fist fests are, are thinking about you know climate change and, and carbon emissions and that sort of thing. But obviously, it is an issue amongst members. It is, and when you start connecting for the dots for them, they absolutely appreciate that they believe if you can influence a company, that we should use our ability to act on that influence. So CBUS has committed to the net carbon zero by 2050, which you know is sort of a practical implementation of the Paris Agreement, um, as I understand it. Now, it is a big target and it's very far away. What can you do in sort of practical steps to make the organization ready and, and more importantly, the investment portfolio? Well, it's a really important point because it is a long way away, the time frame. And what we've done is in 2016, firstly, we implemented a board-approved climate change position statement and we refreshed that in 2020. In 2018, we set our first climate change roadmap and what that did is implement the uh, requirements and aspirations of the, the position statement. And we refreshed that last year as well in 2020. What we did in 2018 was we set property targets, so net zero by 2030 for all our property fund managers. And I'm delighted to say that they're all on the right trajectory to meet that. So that was a great outcome. But what that afforded us was the opportunity to see that it's possible. And so then we could apply the targets to the broader portfolio. So in 2020, that's when we set the net zero by 2050 target. What we also did was set an interim target so a 45% absolute reduction by 2030. Now, the reason why we did this was for, for several purposes. Firstly, the absolute target recognises the real-world impact and that we need to reduce real-world emissions as well as those in our portfolio. Also, that the science indicates the 45% reduction by 2030 is what we need to get to by 2050. But to your point, the targets for 2030 it's seen as being attainable because for us, those time horizons is when our investments team are making those decisions because it's it's much more real than 2050 and it's it's really conceptually uh, very difficult to, to think about what to do. But also we set an interim target because that's what we ask of companies as well. So what we've done is we've recently finished a project on our asset class pathways. So what does our portfolio look like when we get to 2030 and a 45% reduction. And firstly, we did our baseline and we can accurately map around 72% of our portfolio. The gaps for us are in fixed income, which is largely sovereigns and also cash as well. So we undertook scenario analysis and we used six different scenarios between a 1.5 and 2 degree range and basically mapped the pathways 
what we found is there's firstly a lot of variability in those scenarios, but we can achieve those targets with the current portfolio composition uh, at the current uh, fund. One of the challenges though for us is working through the growth because the models allow for a four, around 3 to 4% GDP growth. We're going to grow at double that rate. The other consideration, of course, is the transition that we're going through in superannuation at the moment with mergers. So we've factored those components in as well. Where we'd like to get more granular is on the sectors because we want to bring a total portfolio perspective to this rather than just looking at asset classes in silos and have more of a matrix approach where we have sectors and asset classes and seeing where the risks are through a different lens, but also the opportunities as well. So you mentioned that in fixed income and cash, it's harder to do. Why is that? Is that, you know, you can't really force a government to reduce their carbon or what is the difficulty there? Well, the challenge in sovereigns is when you start accounting for a country's climate or carbon emissions, I should say, you end up double, triple counting. So it becomes very challenging. And really the question is, what are you measuring? So you don't really know what the right component is. Is it the operations of the government? Is it the, uh, is the, the economy as a whole? So you start to bring in uh, large accounting areas, errors into your, in, into your uh, calculations. And so we've decided at this stage that what we'll do is track our sovereigns and how they're progressing against 2050 and also 2030 targets in addition to that, we are members of the UN Convened Asset Owners Alliance, and they're working on this uh, this asset class right as we speak. So we'll see what comes out of that and if there's anything, uh, any new thinking that we can apply to this issue. Yeah, the double counting issue, that's, that's an interesting one as well, because if you bring it back to sort of company level, you also have to be sort of careful with how carbon is treated there. So I think I recently heard an example where you know, this, uh, one of the energy companies has a big uh, number of renewable assets, but they also sell carbon credits on the back of those assets. So can we then offset that for this company or not? Or are you then double counting as well when they those credits are already sold? How, how do you keep track of all of that? There's a lot of challenges in the data. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it, it is, it, the data isn't perfect, but we it does continue to evolve and what we've seen over time and particularly in the last few years is the, the data gets better and better and, and as the standards become uh, more particular about what's required in the reporting from companies, then hopefully we'll see uh, an improvement in that space. Yeah. The, the analysis by asset class I find also interesting because people start with different asset classes. Um, sometimes they start with equities because they're most familiar with that. Recently, we had a discussion around illiquids that potentially that's an asset class where you see the most impact because there's a lot of infrastructure, a lot of property there. Um, they might potentially be more impacted, but also harder to get rid of. How, how did it turn out with the different asset classes? Did illiquids come up as a, as a key risk area? When we looked at our portfolio, if you take the mix of asset allocation, we have about 50% in equities and just under half of that is in Australian equities. If you look at the other side of the portfolio on a liquids, 
it's close to, it's around 13% property and then the same for infrastructure as well and a tiny portion in private equity. What we found on the equity side is that when you break it down, that's where most of our emissions sit. But what we're talking about is operational emissions, the so scope one and two. That's not yeah. the supply chain emissions of scope three. So it, it, it is good to keep that in mind. Uh, within that equities portfolio, breaking it down again, the Australian portfolio is much more carbon intensity than any other part of, uh, part of our investments. And to a granular level, there's 20 companies that make up 50% of the emissions in the portfolio. So it starts to get very granular and very targeted on specific company and assets. What we found on the liquid side, so property for us is very green. And by nature of our members and CBUS property and also our other property fund managers, they've all set, already set these commitments to the net zero by 2030. So they represent maybe 1% or 2% of our emissions, yet 13% of our portfolio. So we're very comfortable there. But what we're doing is starting to push into the hard-to-abate sectors, so the embodied energy in the building space and starting to consider that. So we've also put a target around that in our current roadmap because it gives us focus. On the infrastructure side, that starts to get more complicated. If you look at it on a pure emissions basis, uh, then... It's not that big a contributor, but if you start to bring in scope three emissions, that's when we'll start to see the challenges because they are long-held assets and they're potentially uh, assets that can be transitioned as well because they may be able to be repurposed. But then we need to start considering over the long term, is there any that may become stranding? However, the important way that we've approached this is that it's a total portfolio approach. So what we can do is to meet our targets and reduce our emissions in the portfolio, uh, we've got the ability to think about what we can do in different asset classes because different sectors will transition and decarbonise at different rates. We know that. So we know our infrastructure portfolio will take longer and we've accepted that, but we do have other parts of the portfolio that can move faster and other sectors. And that's why we really want to get down to that sector level so we can start bringing in this information and really looking at where we can make an impact. Yeah. So measuring and sort of tracing where all the carbon comes from is, is of course, important. But to what degree do you think it's the responsibility of an investor to engage and steer companies and organisations in, in, in the right way? Well, what we're seeing is companies have responded to this transition. So where there's legislation in place, we have seen companies starting to uh, to change. Even when large companies don't have that legislation around them, particularly coming out of Europe, they are aware that they need to transition their businesses and have set targets and commitments to net zero. And we're starting to see that become more commonplace. What we have learned from our lessons around ongoing advocacy work, though, that investors do need to play an active, collective and deliberate role. Ultimately, we are part owners of these companies, so it does become our responsibility as well. And what we've seen is the global collaborative organisations and initiatives such as Climate Action 100, where they're getting owners such as CBUS 
you can have a far better chance of driving change and getting action on companies when you do act together. And it's also a very timely discussion because Climate Action 100 has just released their benchmarking report, and it's the net zero global benchmark report for the world's largest corporate emitters. Oh, it is. It is. It's recently released, hot off the press, but it is a very sobering read. So I do want to warn you uh, that uh, you may be taken aback by it, but it does highlight how far we still need to go in this transition. What it does show is that companies are making ambitious climate commitments, but we now need to deliver. Or I should say they now need to deliver. But it also does provide clear engagement parameters for us and for investors to really drive faster corporate action. You mentioned a couple of organisations, Climate 100 and others. Um, There seems to be a lot of different organisations playing in this space. How do you decide which ones are relevant to CBUS and which ones you just don't have time for? We're a member of a number of member organisations and advocacy is really a key component of our strategy for responsible investment. Now, any time that we become a member of one of these organisations, we do go through a business case to determine what will be the benefits ultimately to our members. We do recognise, though, that these type of issues, climate change and others, they do require collective action. So if I take the member organisation AXI, any time that we're engaged or any time that AXI is engaging with companies, on average, they represent about 10% of the ASX. So our ability to engage is enhanced when we use our collective voice. We've got Climate Action 100. It's got nearly 600 investors. It's over $50 trillion in assets engaging over oh, close to 200 companies. And that represents about 80% of industrial emissions. It's very significant. And we're also seeing others start to emerge as well. So investors against slavery and trafficking, looking at modern slavery issues across the Asia Pacific. And we look at the issues on a materiality basis. So is it going to affect change for our investments, both internal and external? But we also look at what we can do ourselves. So if we can do these, if we can undertake the issues ourselves more effectively, we will. But often it's much better to have that collective voice. So how does action look like? Um, I I did an interview with Mike Weish uh, a while ago, CIO of Fishing Super, and he sort of looked at all the engagement over the years and thought there's actually not much changed. And I'm paraphrasing what he sort of said there, but... Basically, he said, if you want to get action, if you want to get real change, you're going to have to uh, file some shareholder resolutions when companies are not willing to change. What is your view on shareholder resolutions? My view on shareholder resolutions is they can be a useful tool, but they're one tool that investors have available. And a couple of examples of that. So shareholder proposals are... They can be used to express concerns to a company on ESG matters where engagement perhaps is proving unsuccessful. And it is important to recognise, though, that there are regional differences as well. So, for example, in the US, they are often used as a mechanism to engage with a company. In Australia, we have great access to companies, so we don't need to use them for this purpose. 
And it goes back to the point around the benefit of collective memberships. Locally, shareholder proposals at this point in time are often raised by NGOs, sometimes by super funds. And what this means is that our view on the risk to the shareholder value or exposure may be different to the proponents who raise these proposals. When we do look at them, we assess them on a case-by-case basis and our position will differ depending on the company in question. Uh, Where we have supported proposals, it's really around a signal to company because we think the pace of change is too slow or there's insufficient disclosure on particular issues. And if we do vote and support a shareholder proposals, we always engage with the, the company in question in the Australian market to notify them why. To this date, we haven't put any shareholder proposals on ballot because we don't think there's a need to for us. And we prefer to hold directors to account first. We're able to use the AGMs to do that if we don't think that engagement is successful. But globally, we have, and also in the Australian market, seen an increase in shareholder resolutions, and they will continue to increase, particularly around climate change. An interesting one that's coming up at the moment, and this goes to the concept of engagement, shareholder resolutions, what's the best tool, is say on climate. And what that's seeking is to raise shareholder proposals so companies are, uh, have to vote or investors need to vote on the company's action plans and transition plans for climate change on an annual basis. Now, this is a global campaign and the purpose is to establish greater transparency on the company actions and their response to the transition it was launched by the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, and there's really key three key things they're asking. To provide an annual disclosure on emissions, to present a plan on those emissions, and that they put that to the AGM on an annual basis. Now, in Australia, we're just about to go into the mini voting season, and we've seen three companies potentially have these shareholder resolutions Uh, put forward to them. But what we've done with other members and our organisations such as AXI, the Australian Council of Super Investors, is we've engaged with these companies because we do think this is a good idea and we've asked them to get onto the front foot and suggest that they take this on board and put it forward as an advisory resolution. So it doesn't need to go to, uh, it doesn't need to come up as a shareholder proposal. So this week alone, what we've seen is Santos, yep. Woodside, and also Oil Search have all announced their intentions to put these resolutions as a non-binding advisory vote in their upcoming AGMs. And what that will look like is in 2022, we'll be able to vote on an annual basis on their transition plans. Okay. It's a great outcome. Yeah. So there's progress made there. Excellent. Now... Something that has probably come more recently to the fore is the the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And they're sort of very aspirational goals about getting rid of hunger and poverty. How useful and relevant do you think are they to the investment industry? They're absolutely important to investors. Now, where we're at at the moment in the evolution of ESG is we've shifted from 
the exclusions focus. We're moving beyond the integration and value creation idea, or we're we're still in that phase, but we're also starting to recognise that these types of issues, not just about the impact of ESG on the portfolio. So if you think about risk management and the value creation concept, but it's also looking at the impact of our investments on broader society and starting to consider that we need to think about the outcomes of our investments on the world around us. So it's a concept of double materiality. And this has really started to come to the fore through the rise of global sustainable finance and issues. We're seeing double, uh, dozens of examples of those in Europe and Australia as well, such as the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative. But really the underlying principles of that is the sustainable development goals. So they're absolutely relevant for investors. So we need to start this conversation because these global goals are relevant for all society. Whilst they're developed by governments, they do have broad applicability to all of us because there is a significant amount of private capital that's needed to help solve them. So an estimated five to seven trillion on an annual basis until 2030. What they also do is they set expectations and enable the ability to track progress against the targets. But we do need to remember they are aspirational. Now, in 27, CBUS did adopt the SDGs and identified seven that we believed we could meaningfully contribute to. And we thought they were important because, as I've mentioned, our members are starting to be interested in these types of issues. We've got regulators, the modern slavery laws, and if you look at them, what they expect is that we report our actions on how we identify, assess and manage modern slavery risks uh, across our organisation and our investment portfolio Now, that isn't an investment materiality lens. It's a harm to people. So it's starting to bring out these concepts of the sustainable development goals. And so for us, it's really the most relevant framework to bring all these types of issues together and then think about how we communicate that to our members. So when fund managers are starting to look into ESG, in the early days, we sometimes saw that they sort of took existing strategies and then line them up with ESG uh, um, goals and sort of greenwashing where they didn't really tailor their strategies towards ESG. They just sort of retrofitted existing strategies. Now, more recently, we've heard with the UN Sustainable Development Goals that there's a bit of a rainbow washing going on and the rainbow referring to the 17 colors of the different uh, goals on the, the SDGs. Um, have you seen any of that? Oh, that's a great term, rainbow washing. And look, we see it in ESG and of course we're going to see it in the SDGs as well. I do think it is the responsibility of investors though, like us, to really think about what we're investing in and we need to take the onus and responsibility to make sure that uh, what's being marketed as an SDG product is the reality and of what they're trying to achieve. What's really interesting is we've seen a rapid uptake in use cases and particularly in Australia. For example, there was a report released last year by the Investor Group on Climate Change and it was looking at how investors allocate capital 
to the net zero transition and also what methodologies they use. And the SDG is now, SDGs are now the primary framework that these investors are using with over 60% of respondents indicating that it's their preferred methodology. That's doubled in one year. We've also seen this in the ASX 200 and company reporting, again, doubled in three years since 2017. And now what we're seeing is close to half of the ASX use the SDG as a framework to guide their disclosures and monitor their performance. Globally, we're still slightly lagging behind peers, uh, but what's interesting is there was a recent international study done, and what that highlighted was that only around 5% of companies are using and reporting metrics. So it does become a challenge if the metrics aren't being reported. What we do need to recognise as well is that some of the SDGs are investable and some of them aren't. So you really need to focus on the ones that are important to you as an organisation. And of course, measurement is incredibly important as well. And it's, it's really hard to measure the actual impacts you're having. And this comes to the concept of additionality. Can we say that we really are contributing to the SDGs? Are we adding value beyond the baseline of what we're already doing. So are we making a difference to real world outcomes? If you take them in the purest form, they are directed at emerging markets. So how intentional are we being about investing? And and this really does come to the idea of the rainbow washing that you're referring to. But that all being said, we do need to start somewhere. and, And if we wind back to where we were on ESG, we're at a similar place to the SDGs. So it will continue to evolve because they aren't going away. What's important is how they're communicated and that how that's been communicated is genuine. Yeah. So taking all of this into account is a big space, but um, if I gave you now a magic wand and you were allowed to solve one of the ESG-related issues, what would it be? Well, of course, it would be climate change. (laughs) It's hard to go past it, really, because it's such a systemic risk globally for not only investors, but economies and people as well. So I think it would definitely have to be climate change. And it really is the number one issue on investors' radar at the moment. And I would suggest one of the top issues that global economies are facing as well as uh, companies as well. Yeah. And I think um, in terms of translating it to the investment portfolio, we, we seem to get a little bit better at that. But you mentioned earlier about the, the six scenarios uh, um, that you looked at for, for the 2050. Do you have a, a good grasp of climate-related risks on the holdings that CBOS had? Sometimes it's hard to make it granular in terms of the actual risk because there's also secondary risks and you can go very down the rabbit hole in terms of uh, qualifying how it impacts the various holdings. Um, how do you tackle that? We look at, look at it like a triangle, really. So we have carbon emissions. We have risk management, which is really asset stranding. And then we have your opportunities. 
and hopefully they all come together at some point in time in, in various manifestations. So whilst we're looking at decarbonising our portfolio and we know what the trajectory is that we need to get to, our premise for that is that we need to engage with the companies and assets to help them transition because we don't want to starve companies of capital that really are at the forefront of developing the technology we need to get to net zero by 2050. But on the other hand, we do need to consider potential risks in the portfolio. So we have developed an asset stranding framework to consider this and we use MSCI data to identify where we believe companies are at risk of asset stranding. Now this framework that we've used is based on forward-looking metrics and we consider this more appropriate than a divestment screen. It can apply to any fossil fuel related company and what we like about this approach is that it's forward-looking. So it includes management capability, the product and operational risks and the business strategy. So we're not just reliant on a carbon footprint of a company, but it's also dynamic. So if a company pivots and changes their strategy to a greener pathway, they can come back into the portfolio. The reason why we went down this path and the impetus for it was our quant value strategies, because we were concerned that as the companies became cheaper, they may become climate value traps and they would start being captured by our quant models. And we found this a very successful approach. So we've rolled that out, our quant strategies, across them uh, for the last year and we completed that in December. And now we're rolling this concept out to our active risk managers as well. Okay, okay. So lots of work to be done. I wish I had a magic stick to give you, but um, I'll let you get back to your work. So thank you very much for coming here today on the show. Much appreciated and uh, good luck. Thank you very much, Walter. And it's been an absolute pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www i3-invest.com Thank you very much.